0: quite an exodus when the kids leave, isn't it? Yeah. Well, for those of you who have been here right along, you know that we are closing on the end of the book of 1 Corinthians. And We've spent the last few weeks in chapter 15, and we're moving on to chapter 16, and then one more week in 1 Corinthians, and we'll finish it up. You know, it's an interesting letter. It's full of all kinds of correction. Of course, our church would never have a problem and it had to be corrected, would it? Yeah, it would never be anything like that. But And they had a lot of questions, and our church would never have a question. But he corrects all kinds of things, like divisions. It starts off with, with some of them were siding with one person, some with the other Some felt like they should be of a little higher position because of their affinity with one and some with the other. And then he deals with just lots of problems, sexual immorality, impurity, marriage. Uh, He deals with the the questions on the resurrection that they had. So just one question after another, one problem after another, he corrects them. And 1 Corinthians is a rich book, and I've enjoyed the time through it. And you know from those of you that have been here, and if you read our doctrinal statement that we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. We believe that it's inspired in all its parts as given in the autographs in the original. We believe it to be the very word of God. We believe that he moved holy men of old to record what he'd have recorded for us and And we're convinced of that, and we make no apology for for that. But it's also important to realize that chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. Chapters didn't come until around 1200, and then verse divisions came maybe 300 years later in the 1500s. So chapter and verses are inserted logically, and they do us a great service, for one thing. I can say, turn to 1 Corinthians 16, and you know where to find it, right? You don't have to go through the entire letter to find the words that I'm going to read in a moment. So they do us a service, but sometimes a division can break a thought, can break a train of thought, when it would be better if the division didn't exist there. And I think we see that this morning. Last week, Nate took an enormous section of 1 Corinthians 15, and did a good job with it. a tough section to deal with all of those thoughts that, that he had to deal with last week. And this morning, I have the privilege of having really a fairly simple section. I kind of arranged it that way. Where's Nate? he will probably begin to notice that. But I, So that I have the easy part, he gets the hard part. The section we're going to deal with is the last verse of chapter 15 and the first four verses of chapter 16. And notice when we read them, listen to the connections. You know, chapter 15 is about the gospel and its conclusion in the resurrection and how important the resurrection is. They read a little bit earlier the first four verses of chapter 15, which really gives us the gospel. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's the good news, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, uh, that he was buried, and that he was raised again. And that gospel carries all the way through, and the implications of the resurrection carries all the way through chapter 15 and all the way through 16. In fact, we live today in light of the resurrection. What day of the week are we meeting on? Sunday. And that's the what day of the week? The first day of the week. And what day was Christ resurrected on? First day of the week. You look in the Gospels, when did he appear to his disciples? On the first day of the week. And so we're celebrating, even by being here on the first day, we're celebrating the resurrection, right? That's why we're here. Otherwise, we would be still worshiping on the Sabbath, which is perfectly okay. We can worship every day. But we historically come together on the first day as a body. And in the book of Acts, by the end of the book of Acts, you find that the church was gathering on the first day of the week. So, resurrection impacts everything. It impacts every part of our life, the fact that Christ is alive today. When there is a crisis in the schools, what do we do? What's the first thing we do? Don't we begin to pray? It's natural to us. And how is it that we can pray? We can pray because we know we have a living Savior, that Christ was resurrected. And so when I say that it impacts everything, it impacts everything. Everything in our life is influenced by the fact that we believe that Christ is alive. And that he lives today at the right hand of the Father to make intercession for us. We believe that there's one God and one mediator between Christ or between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so the the resurrection influences every single thing in our life, and it should influence every day in our life. So, as I begin to read in a second, back at verse 58, listen carefully to a couple little words that show us how this section is connected to the last section on the resurrection. Just listen real carefully. In fact, let me go ahead and read. Verse 58 says this, 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore, therefore, that's a word that speaks of cause, doesn't it? It's a cause and effect word. And so he's appealing to what he's just said, About the resurrection and about our resurrection and our 15 is a glorious chapter, and it's the heights of the Christian life because he's talking about what's going to happen to us. Someday we're going to go be with him. We're going to have a body fashioned like his body. We're going to be just like him, and this the the nature of sin is going to be gone. We're going to have a body that's like his. Uh, Illness is going to be gone. The problems of this life are gone. That's our anticipation because of the resurrection. So therefore, he says, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing in the Lord your work or your labor is not in vain. So in light of the resurrection, brothers, he says, abound in good works and know that the Lord will bless your works. I'll paraphrase. And your labor is not going to be in vain, appealing back to the fact that Christ lives. And and notice that your work in the Lord and your labor would not be in vain. Now he's going to begin to give a practical expression of what that work looks like. So what's he talking about? Well, just keep reading. Chapter 16. He's going to give us a practical way that we see this fleshed out in our lives, our confidence in the resurrection. 16 starts now. Now is an adverb that means in the present time. Not then, not in the future, but right now, at this present time. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also you are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to lay aside something And store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Okay. Now, first thing, get the connection. See the blending of the resurrection the impact that it has on our life, all the way to the practical expression through giving. You know, churches don't like to talk about giving. Tough subject. None of us like to talk about giving. But giving is a practical expression of our confidence in the resurrection. I have believed this for a long time. When I want to check my spiritual health, you know what I can do? to check my spiritual health, I can look at two things. I can look at my calendar and my checkbook. Now, for those of you who do all your banking on computer, I guess you look at your ledger, whatever it is you use on a computer. I don't do banking on it, so I wouldn't know. But if I want to know how I'm doing, I can just look at my calendar. How did I spend my time over the last month? Where did I invest my time? Most valuable resource I have, where did I put it? And then secondly, where do I put my money? Because the Lord Jesus said that where my treasury is, there my heart will be also, right? So wherever I'm investing my money, that's where my heart is. And if all my money is going to a certain thing, or the the majority of it, that, that's where my heart is. That's where I'm invested. So money's important. It tells us a lot. And the Bible speaks a lot about money. And we do a great disservice if we come to a section like this. We're going through 1 Corinthians, and we avoid the section on money. Don't you think? It's a great disservice because the Lord put it here. We believe it's his inspired word. So those two words, therefore, in light of the resurrection, know that your work isn't in vain. And then now, he says, about the collection and notice that he says the collection for the saints and then he says that it's on the first day of the week isn't that a good reminder why on the first day of the week once again because of the first day being the day of resurrection I think there are some very logical things that grow out of these few verses and we're going to be it's going to be very simple uh, very straightforward but I believe it's here And the first thing you notice in these verses, he says that the collection for the saints is to be done by all of you. I instructed the other churches there to give, and I'm instructing you, Church of Torrent, Church of Alliance, wherever it is, I'm instructing you to give. So it was for everybody. It was universal that all were to give, and I believe that's true today. Now, I know the objection, okay? I already know what people are going to say. Some are going to say, I don't have anything to give. That may be true. That may be true, because in a moment we're going to see how he defines how much we should give. Maybe it's true. Look back at your check register. Look back at where your money's going, and see if maybe you do. Here, let me give you a rule of thumb that I've used and it's it's been good for me is that I look periodically at where we are in giving and we primarily give through the local church we a little bit here or there or elsewhere but primarily we give through the local church and i look at what i gave last year then i look at what i gave this year and assuming that my income is consistent I personally like to see that number go a little higher the following year. Now, you'll hit a point where you can't do that anymore, maybe, but I've got a couple good stories for you about people who gave. But, but yet, it's just a good measurement to think, how much did I give, and can I maybe give just a, a little bit more in the following year? The first thing that he says there is that you're all to give, you're to gather together, and I just see a priority. I see a priority in giving. You know, everything we do in life is intentional. We don't just slip into life. If we're going to go to school, there's got to be intentionality behind it. If we're going to go to college, we've got to be intentional in that. We've got to prepare. We've got to get ready, and then we've got to study. Uh, there's intentionality in our work. We've got a purpose to work. We've got a purpose to do a good job. And we've got to be intentional in that. There's intentionality even in our witness. It's got to be something that we are aware that we want to be involved in, we want to do, and then we've got to flesh that out. We've got to make it work. There's intentionality in our giving, is that it has to be a priority. It has to be something that's on our heart and on our mind that we're thinking about so it it has to be a priority in our life. Notice that, as he works through here, he says, uh, "Give, and I can pick up the phrase, "As the Lord may prosper," the latter part of verse two, store it up, and give as the Lord may prosper." Um, I hope I don't get run out on a rail this morning. I do not believe that the New Testament teaches tithing as such. I don't think you're going to find a percentage in the New Testament. What you are going to find is the teaching to give as the Lord prospers. What's that mean? Well, it means that some people, and I, uh, any of you know the name R.G. Letourneau? You know that name? He's a great example to use. R.G. Letourneau was an inventor. He made earth-moving equipment, and he not only invented it, then he manufactured it, and apparently made a lot of money in the earth-moving equipment. He was very creative, innovative. He did things like rubber tires on earth-moving equipment, which had never been seen before. And a lot of the equipment used today is based on design that R.G. Letourneau did 75 years ago or 100 years ago. And Letourneau was a committed Christian man, and from the beginning, he was committed to give. He formed Letourneau College, and it was a college that was to give practical training for people who wanted to get into engineering fields, but it was also a college that was dedicated to Christ. He funded Laterno College. But... Early on in his industrial career, he determined to give 90% of his income away, live on 10. Wow. You say, that'd be easy. No, 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 no. That's not easy. Even for somebody who has a lot of money, that's tough, to give away 90 and live on 10. Is Is that intentional giving? Some of us could never do that. But maybe... One of the reasons we could never do is because we don't start somewhere in giving. Some statistics that I, I thought was were interesting. Um, Americans, if you feel bad about the way Americans give, Americans give uh, per capita seven times more than Europeans to Christian charity, to Christian work, to ministries. Seven times what they do in Europe, in the, in the U.S. We were talking in our ABF this morning. Maybe that's one of the reasons that the Lord has spared this country and and given us the prosperity we have, maybe. I don't know. But here's another interesting statistic. As a percentage of income, low-income people give a higher percentage than high-income people. Isn't that interesting? That people who have very little give more than people who have a whole bunch? What, What sense does that make? Older people give a higher percentage than the young people. Okay, we can see that. We can see that maybe raising children and beginning to build your life, we can see that. And older people have more disposable income. But they also are many times on fixed income. Older people give more than young. Evangelicals give a much higher percentage than the mainline denominations. There's something there, do you think? I think so. And, and what would I say out of that? Well, here's what I would say, is that if we're going to give, we have to purpose to give. And we need to give as the Lord prospers. Now, I said that I do not believe the New Testament teaches 10%. Would you rather live under the Old Testament economy or the New Testament economy? I'd a whole lot rather live under the New Testament economy. Um, I don't want to be under the Sabbath day laws where I can't can't walk to the store on a Sunday, or in this case a Saturday under the Sabbath. I, I don't want to live under the laws of the Old Testament because I have the freedom that Christ gave me today, and I appreciate that freedom. But in the Old Testament... They, if you total all of their giving, it was around twenty-three percent, not ten percent, because they supported their government through their giving, they supported the poor through their giving. When they had national festivals, that was all supported through their giving. So and I've not stopped to calculate it, but I've read it in several places, it comes out to about twenty-three percent. So they gave more than ten, but ten percent was the baseline, the starting point. And I guess i look at it this way. If the Old Testament gave 10%, and I live in an age of grace, I live in the freedom of the New Testament, should I give less than they did in the Old Testament? And while I don't believe that the New Testament directly teaches 10%, it just seems to make sense to me that, that I ought to certainly give what they gave in the Old Testament. So I... Kind of a rule of thumb. You guys have to interpret that. No one's going to judge you as a percentage. No one's going to know. And in a moment, we're going to see the rationale for this. But let me just say it now that I don't have any idea what anybody gives. Don't know. Don't want to know. I don't, I don't have any interest in what people give. So tithing, well, you have to pray about that. Think that through. What percentage should I give? If you're giving nothing, start at 1% then look for 2%, then look for 3%. And here's, here's another principle. If, if we owe someone money, that we have a debt. Debt can make a slave out of us. But if we owe someone money to protect the testimony of Jesus Christ, we need to pay that money. We need to pay it. And for me to give to the church on borrowed money makes no sense whatsoever. I'd say, if I were sitting down with someone who had that as part of their financial plan, I'd say, don't do that. Don't give out a of borrowed money. Don't give out of money you owe to somebody else. Pay that debt. Protect the testimony of Jesus Christ in your debts. Because when we name the name of Christ out there in the public place, they're watching everything we do if we fail to pay a bill, they know that. Pay your bills. That's the starting point. But then make a plan. You know, there are a lot of good helps out there, and good practical helps. We have a couple people in the church that can help with this. If, if you have a problem with financial planning, make a plan. And make a plan to get all unsecured debt gone. Get it gone. Get rid of it. Get unsecured debt. Unsecured debt will put you in bondage. And when you start looking at the interest on unsecured debt, we use a credit card for everything, and we pay the credit card at the end of the month. I do it for two reasons. One is that I don't have to carry a lot of pocket money, and I don't have to write checks all month. But if it gets to a point where I can't pay it at the end of the month, then I need to get rid of the credit card. But I also get free nights at Choice Hotels through my credit card. There's always little things you can do with it, and we use them every year. But but we use that credit card. And then there's a statement. Sometimes, because of what we're buying that month, there can be quite a bit of money on it. And there's always a statement. If you pay the minimum balance, you will pay this much in interest, and it will take this long. Have you ever looked at that? You ever looked at what it means to pay the minimum balance on a credit card? My goodness, they've got you. It's enormous. And, and they've enslaved you if you get to that point. So this is just practical. Does it grow out of this passage? Well, maybe not exactly. But we need to really work hard to get rid of unsecured debt. Get, get it out of your way so that you have freedom. You know, let's suppose that a young couple—give you an example—felt like that the Lord was uh, really calling them into a ministry or into missions. Don't know if there's anybody like that. Maybe a young lady, young man. But they look at their finances, and they are loaded up with debt. Can they go? No, they can't go. They can't respond. But if we can free ourselves, to where if the Lord calls us into something, we have the freedom to do that. It doesn't worry me, and never worries me, not to have a lot of money in the bank. It's a good thing. <laughs> because we've never had a lot of money in the bank. That doesn't worry me. But it sure does worry me when a bill comes in and I don't know where the money's coming from to pay it. It begins to monopolize my thinking, doesn't it? It begins to dominate me. I've got to figure out how to get rid of this, what to do, how do I pay this. It begins to dominate my thoughts. And there is great freedom in being debt free. And I just believe it's the way to go, folks. And I would encourage all of us to think in those terms. Sometimes you're going to buy a house, obviously. Most of us don't have the money to buy a house. Sometimes, even today with the cost of cars, which is nearly as much as a house, you may need to plan carefully. And when you do that, don't take on the other unsecured debt. Back to the, the story of uh, R.G. Letourneau. R.G. R. Letourneau had some great quotes, and they aren't directly related to finance, but he said, the bigger a man's head is, the easier it is to fill his shoes. I oh, really like that guy. Yeah. Here's a great quote by him, though, and he lived this. He said, you never know what you can accomplish until you say yes to God. I I believe that quote. We don't know what we can accomplish until we say a really big yes to God. God. Yes, God. Yes, God. Yes, God. And I think that includes finances. There's another guy. How many of you used Colgate toothpaste this morning? Anybody but me? Okay, I did too. Colgate gave his life to Christ, and uh, he determined to follow the Lord in everything he did. And he opened a company called William Colgate and Company. And he made soap, and he began to make other cosmetic and facial cleaning products. And at first he decided that out of that company he was going to give 10%. And then he changed it, and he gave 20%. And then he changed it, and he gave 30% and so on, I don't know where it stopped. But as the Lord prospered his business, he just kept raising what he gave. And the Lord would prosper his business some more, and he'd give some more. And so we use Colgate toothpaste even today. Uh, Colgate College was named after him, incidentally. Uh, Great prestigious university. I think it's left its Moorings, but uh, he was involved in that. Give us the Lord prospers. and and start somewhere. Make it a priority. Make giving a priority. Um, It has to be part of our life. And here's a really important part of this. What about accountability for my gifts? I personally am concerned about that, and you should be too. If I give to any Christian organization, I want to know for certain what they're going to do with that money, and I want to know that it gets done. Do you? Is that pretty important to you? You want trust, don't you? But look what Paul says Uh, at the end of this section. First thing he says in verse 2 at the end, uh, Give as he prospers, and so that there will be no collecting when I come. Now, why would he have said that? Why would Paul say, take your collections before I come? So that when I get there, we aren't taking a collection for this. Why would he say that? Well, I think that probably it wouldn't take a lot of imagination to know why. First of all, if somebody with the prestige of Paul, he's well known by now, you know, if if his stature comes in and they're taking an offering, what might people do? Do you think they might give to impress him? Do you think to get his attention? They might. The other thing is there are always those people, always people who are doubters, that believe that he only wants the money. And that's why he's coming. He wants our money. You know, this guy don't care about us. He just wants our money. And, and Paul said, no, no, no. I, I don't want to be involved in this. You make the collection and do it before I come so I don't have to be involved in it. One of the great tributes to Billy Graham was that Billy Graham had a board of directors who determined his salary. And he got what would be a nice salary for most of us. We'd say that's a good salary. But it was very modest compared to people of his stature, people who met with presidents and dignitaries. Billy Graham's salary was very modest. And he never handled money, never got involved in money. And because of it, his reputation was impeccable there was nothing people could point at him. And I, and I appreciate that about Billy Graham. Never a scandal connected to him, unlike many of our TV evangelists who have scandal connected to everything they do. Uh, the second point to make out of that is he says that uh, in, in uh, verse 3, when I arrive, I will send those who you accredit by letter to carry the money down. For the offering. Okay. Now think about that a minute. You guys are going to select somebody from among your own who you trust, and you're going to attest to their reliability, and they're the ones that are going to carry the money to its destination. And so how's that apply to the church today? Folks, I believe first that a church should have total accountability, and also total exposure on the way we handle money. The financial records of the church are public domain. If you want to know where the money goes in the church, other than names, of, of, uh, there are times where it's not prudent to give the names if a, a benevolence gift or something was given. But if you want to know where the money of the church goes, you, Nate, right now, or Jane have access to it, that that information is totally available to you. You want to know what the offering was last week? Ask her. Uh, you want to know what the expenses were last month? Ask her. In fact, she'll print out a statement that'll wear you out. You know, it'll give you all the information you could want. There is total accountability, and there has to be. There has to be. I'm not giving to something that doesn't have accountability. I recently... I. Uh, have really been struggling with an institution that I love dearly. I went to grad school at Moody, and in their first years of their grad school, and and I liked Moody. Moody meant a great deal to me. But if any of you that read, if you read anything in Christianity today, there's uh, a little shadow cast on Moody right now. Did they do anything terribly wrong? Well, the verdict's out on that. I don't know. But... The handling of money was part of that. And here's another part of it. One of the board of trustees was gambling publicly and going to places of where they gamble. That's what they do. And that just bothered me. It bothered me. Somebody who's in that prominent position leading that institution has to go out and gamble. He has a lot of money. He's a guy who's made a lot of money. But I did, it bothered me. And we've always just given a little bit to Moody. There's not a lot to give. But I'm uneasy with it. Why? Because of the things that have come to light. And boy, is that true in a church? If there's any kind of malfeasance in the area of money, churches take a hit. And it discredits the cause of Christ, doesn't it? We don't want to do that. And so there there has to be accountability. In Paul's case... Take the offering before I come. I don't really want to have a part in that. Then select people who you trust. We have two people that count always. Then there's two people who who go through the books and make the entries. And then that document is printed out. There is, I hate to use the term, but there's always a profit and loss. This much money came in and this much money went out. And here's the checkbook bounce. So you always know exactly where the money went. I think that's really important, don't you? And I think that's what he's calling for here, is that there are people who are honest who are handling this offering. And it's being taken care of. One of the people that um, I've always admired is J.C. Penney. We're right next door to them, appropriate. You know what J.C.'s name was? Anybody remember? James Cash Penny. What a name. Uh, His dad's name was James Cash Penny. So J.C. seems right. J.C. Penny was raised in a Christian home, very, very conservative Christian home. Uh, And as a young man in 1902, he started his first store. I think he called it Golden Rule, and they sold dry goods, clothing, and so forth. And I've got a couple quotes from Penny, but somehow he kind of lost his moorings. It wasn't that he was unethical, but his values kind of got flopped a little bit. And when it came up to the time of the Depression, 1929, Penny lost it all, as did many people. But he said, I was at the end of my rope. My business had crumbled, even my own wife and children were estranged from me, and it was all my fault. They put him in a rest home, sanitarium, and to, to get his health back and regain his composure. And he was walking through the hall one day of this place, and he heard some singing and he remembered this from his childhood. Here's the song they were singing. This is by his own testimony. Be not dismayed, whatever betide, God will take care of you. All that you need, he will provide. God will take care of you. Well, he followed the sound, and he came into a little chapel, and there were some people gathered there. Some Some of the staff were gathered there. And they began to to read scripture and they read this come unto me all ye who are heavy laden and I will give you rest and Penny says that for the next 12 hours he just sat and contemplated what he had just experienced and as he came out of that he was never the same he was never the same man because for the first time he trusted Christ with everything in his life and he really believed that God will take care of you. The Lord spoke to, to him and he said uh, he felt that he had been striving to honor God with his business. And now it was time to rest in God's grace. He heard the gospel of the risen Christ. That Does the resurrection of Christ have bearing on what we do? Does it have bearing on our giving? Does it? Absolutely. And so in J.C. Penney's case, he prayed. First, he prayed, I could, I could almost envision this. He said, Lord, will you, will you take care of me? Will you take care of me? And then he went on and says that it was as though I was passing from the darkness into the light. Well, he started selling dry goods again. Only this time... He went from 1 to 2 to 30 and to the expanse of the J.C. Penney Company, although it's struggling a little today. But he grew an enormous business. And you know what he did? He gave away millions and millions and millions of dollars. He gave away money to Christian publications. He believed that God's word ought to be in people's hand. He gave away money to educational institutions. He believed that people needed to be able to consume God's word. Uh, he he gave away money that we could only imagine. Now, for those of us here this morning, it's not very likely that we're going to be R.G. Letourneau. I don't want to undersell you. Some of you young ones, you might be. Uh, some of my grandkids, maybe they will. hope you do. Remember your grandpa if you do. Will you do that? Um, but it's probable that we're not going to reach that kind of a height of R.G. Letourneau or William Colgate or J.C. Penney, uh, that we can give 90% or that we can give millions. Maybe that will never happen. But we can give faithfully. We can make it a priority. We can do it regularly. We can make it a regular pattern. And then we can give as the Lord prospers, Right? There are folks here this morning that are at at different points on a a continuum as far as finance. Some have a lot of little kids to raise. Um, Some are struggling with job issues. I know, I know all of that. I understand all of that. And some would say, "I just don't have anything to give." Well, I'll only say this: Look at your checkbook. Look at your calendar. See where your money goes and see how much of it maybe is being paid to interest that pays no dividends to you. Take a good look at it. And then say, Lord, help me to start somewhere. Help me to start somewhere. If it's a dollar, it's a dollar. Help me to start somewhere and to begin to give on a regular, consistent basis and make it a priority. And I believe that you'll prosper from it. I do not teach a prosperity gospel. I'm not saying to you, you give a dollar and God will give you a hundred. I don't believe that. That's no sacrifice. That would be an amazing investment. And he he doesn't teach that. What he teaches is that giving is a sacrifice. It is a sacrifice. You you could drive a nicer car maybe. You could do something else. But where's your heart? Because where our treasure is, that's where our heart's going to be. There's a lot more could be said about giving, but I'll stop there. Let's pray. Lord, we live our life in light of Christ's resurrection. Every facet of our life. Our time, our energies, our our investment. And Lord, we we live our life in the area of finance in light of Christ's resurrection. We believe, Lord, that Christ came out of that grave. And, And we believe, Lord, that He lives today to make intercession. And we believe, Lord, that when we pray, He hears and He cares. Lord, I, I pray that if there's someone who's never put their trust in a risen Savior, that even though we haven't talked about how to be saved, but Lord, I pray that you'd move in their lives, help them to see their need for Christ. For those of us who have, Lord, help us to, with integrity, a purpose to support your work. God, help us. As always, that's our prayer. Help us, we pray in Christ's name.